Mike, thanks for playing. Eric, it's good to have you back on the drums today. And then Sam today on the cello there. I don't see Sam right back, back there. Oh, there you are. And uh, it's beautiful. We'll have to get that mic'd so we can hear that all the way through uh, the auditorium. Matthew chapter number five. Matthew 5, thanks again for being here, and it's a joy to celebrate with you and to celebrate the goodness of God, and uh, I've enjoyed the Beatitudes so far, and uh, I know that today uh, will be a message that just kind of adds on to what we have been already discussing, Uh, actually Jesus' words here on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the beginning of it, but let's begin reading in verse number 1 of Matthew chapter number five. I want to encourage you, if you haven't been able to hear all of these messages, they are up on our YouTube channel. We are Redwood. And I would encourage you to not just start from today. If, we, if this is maybe the first message that you're hearing in the series, or maybe you've missed a few, it won't necessarily all uh, jive together. And so I'd encourage you to go back, spend the time this week to make sure that we're fully caught up because these really are momentum type of of verses and really messages. The Bible says in Matthew 5, verse number 1, and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, this will be our text today, are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted persecuted they the prophets which were before you. What just an amazing just words to begin this Sermon on the Mount from Jesus Christ. And I'm sure you didn't miss the word blessed there. It's repeated over and over again. Blessed, blessed. In the Old Testament, God's people were also gathered to a similar type of mountain, and it was Mount Sinai. God came down, uh, but his face was never to be seen on that time. The people, they were, they were kept at a distance. Darkness descended down over the mountain. Fire and smoke covered the mountain, and there was like a, a trumpet that was blasting with the very voice of God. Deuteronomy 4.11 says, And he came near and stood under the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire unto the midst of heaven, with darkness, clouds, and thick darkness. And the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. Ye heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude, only ye heard a voice. And this, the, the, this whole scene was so terrifying that even the author of Hebrews is depicting what Moses said. He said, I'm trembling with fear. Fear, it said in Hebrews 12. And if that is how Moses responded to the voice of God, how do you think that we would have responded or felt at that time when God was giving his Ten Commandments? But when you come to the Beatitudes, the scene is completely different. 
God has come among us in the person of Jesus Christ. His face was seen. He bids us to come to him. At Mount Sinai, God comes down to the mountain in terrifying fashion, and the people there, they're kept at a distance. But here, the Son of God, he goes up into the mountain, verse number one tells us, and when he had sat down, his disciples and the followers, those that were coming, following with Jesus, they all came unto him. At Sinai, God spoke thundering words so terrifying that the people begged that they didn't want to hear it anymore. They said, Moses, we don't want to hear from God again. We want him to speak to you, and then you speak to us. But here, the Son of God speaks. No thundering words of condemnation, but wonderful words of blessing. Who would not want to draw up a chair and sit and let the, 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 the Son of God speak to them when he begins this sermon with blessing, blessing, blessing. And so this morning, I speak, if you'll allow me to, blessing to you. We've been in our series, The Kingdom is Ours, and I love that, it's, that it is ours. But this morning, we're going to look at blessed are they that mourn, those that mourn. We've seen that Christ begins with this astonishing statement, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we saw over the last couple of weeks how Christians, spiritual Christians, they're people who know their own poverty before the Lord. They look to Jesus for not what, uh, what, what they can offer him. They, they know that they don't have anything in and of themselves, but they know that in him they have everything that they need. Aren't you glad that the first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit? Because if the first one was blessed are the pure in heart, none of us would ever get there because that's, that's beyond us. And since it's beyond you, and since it's beyond me, Christ, he comes near to us. And thank God that the starting point is to realize that, God, I'm, I'm bankrupt before you. And that's why if you haven't caught any of these, you've got to go back. Trust me, go back this week when you've got time and listen to the previous sermons. Because you'll notice something in this verse. For they shall be comforted. All of the next ones are all future promises that are really connected to the beginning of being poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we've learned that the last couple weeks. But I'm so glad that it starts here. Charles Spurgeon said, a ladder, if it to be of any use, must have its first step near the ground. This gospel blessing reaches down to the very spot where the law leaves us. See, the law will bring you to a place of being called poor in spirit. And at that time, Jesus will meet you there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He meets you there, the feltness of, of God's very presence in the Son, Jesus Christ. And so today we move to this second beatitude, blessed. Again, I speak blessing to you this morning. Blessed are they that mourn, 
for they shall be comforted. But what is this what is this morning? If you recall, each one of these beatitudes, we're going we're to learn from, from Jesus' words here. We're going we're gonna to try to decipher what exactly does this mean, and then there'll be some application, but then next week will be the full application for our life. But what does it mean that Jesus says to all those that are mourning, you're going to be blessed, and it's without qualification? Literally, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, there are three different types of mourning. There's natural mourning, M-O-U-R-N. All right, we think of mourning hours, but no, the mourning, a uh, kind of a, a soberness about ourselves, a, a grieving, if you allow me to maybe put another word there. There's natural mourning, there is sinful mourning, and there is spiritual mourning. So let's start off with natural mourning is grieving for someone or something that you have lost. God has given you a wonderful gift, and now that gift has been taken away from you. And the natural response to that is to mourn. And those that have ever lost somebody, you know all about this. But Jesus also knew about this. He wept at the graveside of a dear friend by the name of Lazarus. The presence and the comfort of Jesus in the journey of bereavement is a treasured gift to every single believer. But I don't believe that's what Jesus is speaking about here. Not the natural type of mourning, because in the Beatitudes, Jesus is speaking about qualities that we ought to proactively pursue. We're to go after a purity of heart. We are to seek after righteousness. We are to desire meekness in our life. We're to get as much of these things, if you'll allow me to call them things, as we possibly can. Jesus is speaking about a conditions of the heart that are so laden with blessing that all of us are going to want to pursue them because Jesus is connecting a blessing to each one of these. And so he's encouraging us to go after them at any cost. Now that is true of all seven of the Beatitudes. Of course, the eighth is adding is added in there because it's those that are uh, the, the persecuted for righteousness sake. It's simply an outcome of a life that's marked by the other seven. So we're to, we're to desire them, we're to go after them. These blessed qualities ought to be a momentous pursuit of our life. Nobody is saying that about natural mourning. No bereaved person is saying, I want to get as much of this as I possibly can. So I don't believe that's what Jesus is speaking about here. Then there's maybe what we would call the sinful mourning. And this is pining or desiring or, or, or for something that God has not given to us. So there's other things that God has gifted us with and that is taken from us. And so we naturally mourn that. But this sinful mourning is maybe God's not given us something and we're mourning the fact that we do not have it. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That's a worldly grief. It produces 
produces death, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. And so there is no sin at all involved in natural mourning. Jesus wept. So grieving over something that, that God has allowed to be taken away from you is modeled by Christ himself. But there's another kind of sorrow. Paul warns us about a, a worldly sorrow that ultimately leads to death. This sinful mourning is is pining and, 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 and crying about something that we do not have. You have an example of this in Ahab, who was a king of Israel. God had given him a palace. God had given him a kingdom. But right next to that palace, there was this man by the name of Naboth. And what did he have? He had a vineyard. And Ahab, he had all of this, but what did he want? He wanted that vineyard. He was, he was mourning, if you allow me to put it, over, over what he didn't have. The Bible says that Ahab became vexed and sullen is the word. Today, we would probably use the word pouting. He started to pout because, you know what, I got all this, but that's what I want. Boy, have you ever been blessed by God. But you know what Satan does? Satan gets you to focus on all the other stuff that you don't have. He's so good at it. He's so good at showing you things, especially now with social media, right? Where everybody puts their worst day up on Facebook, right? No. They like work on everything and make it all look right. And so he uses that and he tries to get you to think, you, oh, you've got nothing. You're just a failure. And he's so, so good at that. And Ahab, he's like, man, I, I want that vineyard too. Another word that we would use today would be coveting. And what did it ultimately lead to? Murder. World, the sorrow of the world worketh death. You see that on full display there even in the Old Testament. And so coveting is pining for what God has given to others, but he's not given to us. This is sinful mourning. Literally, it can, it can be a killer to you. It leads to death. And obviously, that's not what Jesus is speaking about here. So it's not, it's not that type of mourning. I don't believe it's so much the, the natural mourning that all of us would just seek after loss so we can have this great comforted feeling. I, I don't believe that's what Jesus is teaching here. So then that leads us to spiritual mourning. And this is sorrow over our sins against God. How many of you are thankful for the Word of God? Say amen. You don't have to say amen to this, but you ought to be thankful for a pastor that's willing to preach the Word of God, even on Anniversary Sunday. Spiritual mourning is sorrow over our sins against God. A.W. Pink, excuse me, in his book, The Beatitudes, says, the mourning for which Christ promises divine comfort is a sorrowing over our sins with a godly sorrow. This is what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 7 that we looked at a moment ago. It is blessed, it's blessed because it produces a repentance. And repentance, according to Paul, leads to life. I think we, you, you might know about the natural sorrow. 
All of us have lost something. And perhaps maybe you know about the sinful sorrow that you could acknowledge. Maybe you've been pining for something that maybe you shouldn't. But let me ask you a question. What do you know about this spiritual sorrow? What do you know about this spiritual mourning of where we are realizing that we've been bankrupt before the Lord and that's ultimately going to bring us to us realizing our sins, often even the sin that we're trying to navigate life through in our own power, in our, in our own strength. What do you know about that? This type of mourning that is blessed. Stick with me for the next 10, 15 minutes, please. Because this subject is of a huge importance for the church today. The church as a whole, absolutely Redwood too. Because Christians are surrounded by a form of faith that has been so emaciated, that it's been so diluted, that it's so different from what Jesus said true believing faith was like. I want you to thank God this morning for the fact of the truth of justification by faith. See, Paul told us in Romans 5 verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So why does faith justify and not works? So if you were to kind of go through the rest of the text, it's, it's not by works. Why does faith justify us? Well, a believer is justified by faith because faith unites a person to Jesus Christ. Who is the justifier? Who is the sanctifier? Who is the glorifier? So faith unites you to the one that brings about the beautiful theological terms of justification, sanctification, and so on. And how did he do it? Through his shed blood on the cross. We, I loved celebrating that last, yesterday, or last Sunday in the afternoon. So this power that we get through the blood of Jesus Christ to justify us, sanctify us, and ultimately glorify us, it's applied to the life of the believer by the presence of the Holy Spirit. So let me for a moment here give you kind of how Christianity has been so trivialized in our day. Hear me out. Don't judge first. Hear me, please. Let's start with faith in the way the society does it. Faith, which unites a person to Christ, has been reduced to simply belief and assent to certain truths. It's just belief, right? Simply believing certain things will never change you because the devil believes these things, trust me. So even the devil believes. So it's not just belief. It's Jesus Christ that changes you. So the faith is connected to the person of change. Faith is the bond of a living union with Christ. I don't have time to flesh all of this out throughout the Pauline epistles. But when Christ enters a life, he comes to forgive you, but he also comes to make you holy. He also comes to bring about change. He accepts you as you are, but that grace does not leave you as you are. The replacement of faith, which unites the person to Christ with mere assent just to the truths of Christ, leads to thousands of people to accept Christ without ever bowing to him as Lord, 
without ever acknowledging who the Lord is. We end up with a form of faith that doesn't change lives. We end up with a form of godliness but deny the power thereof, Paul says. I'll be honest with you, the world is filled with Christians just like this. No change whatsoever. I believe faith, repentance. How does the world describe it? Which involves a change of direction has been reduced to merely admitting that I am a sinner and saying a prayer. I told you to stick with me. I want you to listen to Scripture, and I want you to take in how far the Bible talks about this kind of message that often poses under the banner of kind of Christianity today. Here's a biblical call to repentance from the Old Testament, Isaiah 55. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God says to the wicked, to the lost, hey, forsake your ways. Stop doing what you're doing. Turn from that and you turn to Christ. Listen, that is a million miles away from admitting I'm a sinner, but I'm just gonna continue doing what I've always done. Listen to the New Testament, 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So if we're going to name the name of the Lord, here's what it means. It means that we're going to depart from iniquity. So the call of God to repentance, which involves a change in direction, has been replaced by just, hey, hey, just Admit that you're a sinner. Hey, just, hey, hey, God forgives sin. Does he forgive sin? You better believe he does. And we ought to thank him for that. But just say, hey, hey I'm, I'm just a sinner. But union with Christ humbles the sinner. And it leads to a holy life. But that's been replaced by emaciated form of faith. You ready? that can easily be added to the American dream. Faith has been redefined to accommodate our unwillingness in our life. Repentance has been reshaped to fit our indulgences. Most of us have been immersed in this emaciated faith if we're not careful. It's just kind of what's being echoed out there. We doing okay? All right? Happy anniversary. I love you. I truly do. A.W. Tozer, he lamented this a whole half century ago in an awesome book, The Pursuit of God. If you haven't got, buy it. It's good. I should have put that back on the table too. The whole transaction of religious conversion has been made mechanical and spiritless. Faith may now be exercised without a jar to the moral life and without embarrassment to the Adamic ego prior to Christ. Christ may be received without creating any special love for him in the soul of the receiver. The man is saved, quote unquote, but he's not hungry and he's not thirsting after God. 
He goes on to say, the results are that you have people by the thousands who admit that they are sinners and they accept Jesus Christ, but have never experienced one time spiritual life within them. There's never one time been a change. They go direct, they go in the same exact direction that they've always gone year after year after year after year. They do the exact same things prior to salvation year after year after year. There's no pure in heart. They're not merciful. They've never been characterized as having a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Yes, we can backslide. Yes, we can have seasons where we're not. But I'm talking about where there's never any of that. There's never any proof of germination of the Holy Spirit of God within them. And in 2022, we've got to be, in year 29, we've got to be an affront to that type of Christianity. That just says, hey, you know, hey, just, just come to Jesus. And I, we do. But he never leaves you the way you are. True conversion. And Jesus taught about this, right, with all the different types of soils. The seed was always the same. It's always the word of God. And there's going to be people where it's going to come and it's going to be just like picked up by the devil. Other times where it's going to kind of come out, it's going to sprout real quick and then wither away. And there's other times there's going to be full fruit. We understand that. And so I'm not standing up here as a fruit inspector this morning. Remember what the Beatitudes are for. The Beatitudes are not for salvation. Only the blood of Christ is that. Remember our introductory message? The Beatitudes show us, man, okay, all right. Thank you, Jesus. There's, there's new life. There is the Spirit of God living inside of me. We okay? So what are some of the distinguishing marks of someone that is spiritually mourning? Natural mourning? I, I, I don't believe that's what Jesus is teaching here because none of us are going to pursue that. Hey, just bring death all around in my life. No. Spiritual mourning. It's the acknowledging before God of our sin. And so where does this mourning come from? It starts with humility. Well, good thing that's where we started last two weeks, right? Starts right where we were. Spiritual mourning follows natural, naturally from becoming poor in spirit. When you see that you do not have what it takes, you will mourn over the sins that are yours and mourn over the righteousness or the lack of the practical side of your sanctification that's not happening. It's going to bother us. We don't just continue in it. It's going to bother us that we're still thinking that way. I'll be honest with you, this morning, Sarah and I, in my office, literally tears in our eyes, I was mourning over some of my thinking this week. And I'm no perfect example in this. I'm just letting you know, hey, listen, it's even for me too. I was literally like, okay, God, you want me to preach this? Then I better practice this today (laughs) and tomorrow and the next day. But we've been picturing the Beatitudes as a series of seven rings, right? There's an eighth one, but that one's connected to when you're on the other seven. Swinging on the first ring of being poor in spirit is going to lead you to the second one, which helps you to mourn over your sin, which brings blessing. And then you continue on through the swinging. It, it ultimately is this momentous thing. Every sin holds a passing pleasure. And that's why sin so tempts us. Nobody would sin if it weren't true. If it wasn't, man, there's something that's still there. There's just this kind of lastingness. So how do you learn to hate what you used to love and to love what you need to hate? Or what you used to hate, excuse me. 
you got to start on the first ring. So you got to start with last week. You got to be like, okay, all right, I'm not really mourning my sin right now. I'm just okay with sin in my life. Well, then there's not a humility in us. We've got to come back to the first one. We've got to be poor in spirit. We've got to come before the Lord. I'm like, God, I, I've got nothing in, in and of myself to provide to you. And so there's a humility with us. How else do we diagnose if we're really mourning over our sins? Secondly, it's a matter of the heart. See, you might not be able to tell the difference between someone that is spiritually mourning and someone that's naturally mourning in another person. You can always know in yourself, but you might not necessarily know it in someone else because you don't know if they've lost someone or if they're just broken in nature because of maybe a sin in their life. The Bible tells us of the story of Saul. And Saul was a high achiever, but he had a twisted heart. Saul was the first king of Israel. And so those of you that are going through our Route 66 series, we're going to kind of talk about Saul a little bit next week as we get into uh, the first king that's anointed by, uh, by God there. And so, but he led his army into battle. And then what he decided to do is he began to, he decided to take some of the, some of the spoils for himself as well as for the, the, the men. He cheated, he deceived, and he stole, and then he lied to cover it up. But later he was found out. Samuel, they confronted him with the truth, and Saul really didn't have anywhere else to hide. He couldn't, couldn't cover it up. So what did Saul do? Saul confessed. He said that he was sorry. 1 Samuel 15, 24 says, And Saul said unto Samuel, I've sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I'm sure he even maybe did it with a long face. Right? Sad. But just a few verses later, he said unto Samuel, I have sinned, yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel. He didn't want anybody else. So he appears sorry, but he's actually just kind of doing some damage control, trying to control the, the ripple effect of his sins. He's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But hey, hey can, you, can you bring back the blessing? Hey, can you, can you anoint me again here? Can you, can you make everything good? Why? Because he was worried about his visual appearance here. And so it matters. Spiritual mourning, it's a heart issue. It's not how we're seen by other people. It's, it's interior. This is the key to tackling what maybe what we call habitual sins, sins that kind of keep reoccurring in a person's life. So a spiritual Christian doesn't live in this perpetual cycle of sin, saying sorry to God and then repeating the same behavior year after year after year after year. If you're wondering, hey, am I a spiritual Christian in year 49 of going into, into, into our church on 2022, are we just saying, God, I'm sorry about this sin, and we just continue to do it over and over and over and over again, year after year after year. Listen, you're not spiritually mourning. We're not getting on this rung of these monkey bars because it's just this perpetual thing. Why do we know so much about habitual sins? Because we know so little about mourning. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, not to presumption. So here's a person who's content to sin, content to assume forgiveness, but not mourn. Hence, not change. This is not walking the path of repentance. This is walking the path of presumption. God announces Mercy for mourners, not for fakers. Well, I'm sorry. 
but I have no intent of actually changing this. No blessing there. Listen to an old school. You think I'm being hard this morning? <laughs> Listen to an old school Scottish pastor from yesteryear, Alexander McLaren. He said, if you have never been down on your knees before God, feeling that a wicked man, feeling what a wicked man or woman you are, I doubt hugely whether you will ever stand with radiant face before God and praise him through the eternity for his mercy to you. Whoa, what that guy said. Got a little more courage. We doing all right? Here's why I love you. I love you enough to tell you that. And then now let's get to the good stuff. Not that that wasn't good. Spiritual mourning is infused with hope. See, Judas grieved over his sin in betraying Jesus. But that did not have spiritual mourning in it. Why? Because his grief led him to despair. Grief that leads to despair is the work of Satan, not the spirit. So listen, if you already so far in this message are feeling nothing but despair, Satan is working overtime, let now the spirit of God kick in. Because the spirit of God, it, he doesn't bring the despair. Satan brings you to despair, to, uh, despair of self, but he never brings you to hope in Christ. See, what the Holy Spirit does is he brings you to despair and self, but then he leads you to hope in Christ. That is how you tell the difference between what's kind of going on in your life, what's going on in your head. What's the devil trying to do? Hope is the signature of a spiritual mourner. That is why a spiritual Christian, a healthy Christian, someone who's walking through this blessedness of the Beatitudes, they're going to say, like Paul said, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Paul says, sorrowing, sorrowful, yet I'm always rejoicing. It's very fascinating how those two things absolutely can go together. There are two sides of the coin of genuine Christian experience. The, the, the spiritual Christian says, who is sufficient for these things? God, I come, I come bankrupt before you. Who's sufficient to be a good husband? Who's sufficient to be a good father? Who's sufficient to be a good pastor? Who, who's sufficient of this? But it doesn't leave us there. See, that, the, the, that bankruptness before the Lord gets infused with hope. So it doesn't stop there. We begin to say, yeah, who's sufficient in this? Our sufficiency is in Christ. How the Apostle Paul would have worded it. The spiritual Christian says, oh, wretched man that I am. But it doesn't leave himself there. This mourning of his is infused with hope. So he says, thanks be to God who gives me the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The spiritual Christian is able to say, like the Apostle Paul, I am of sinners, I am chief 
but it doesn't leave him there. That morning is infused with hope to where he's able to say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know what Paul is saying? Paul is saying, I am everything that God, through the Holy Spirit of God, has said that I am. I am a child of God. I am beloved. I am accepted in the brethren. I am literally joint heirs with Jesus Christ. My record doesn't always show that. And so I come before the Lord. God, I've got nothing to offer you. And I'm mourning over my sin, but I'm going to stand up in hope. I'm going to stand up in the gospel because the gospel says, but by the grace of God, this is who you've declared me to be for the true Christian. There's hope. So if that despair earlier was leading you to the fact, remember I told you that if this is going to lead you to salvation, praise God for that. Don't fight from that. Don't be like, well, everyone already thinks that I'm saved. That's what Satan wants you to think. No, it's going to lead you to hope. And that hope is always found in Jesus Christ. Healthy Christians. Oh God, help me to be a healthy Christian. We mourn our sins. But that's never the end. Because our mourning is infused with hope. And so we lay hold onto the comfort that is found in Christ. Without that, hear me, it is not spiritual mourning. It's just the devil trying to get you to despair. Because real spiritual mourning, as I close, it's going to bring about amazing hope. Amazing comfort. So what's the blessing? Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn. What's the, what's the blessing that comes to those that will, that's why I say I don't think it's so much natural mourning. Definitely there's comfort in that. Definitely not talking about spiritual or, or sinful mourning. Uh, we shouldn't be wanting what we don't have. We shouldn't be like, you know, wanting Naboth's vineyard there, Okay. But when we're spiritually mourning, when we're mourning over our sin before God, where's this, where does this comfort come from? But I think a better question is, who can comfort the person who feels the weight of their own sin? Those who mourn find a friend in the man of sorrows. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ's death, Isaiah announced that this Redeemer, he was going to be a man of sorrows. This Redeemer was going to be acquainted with your griefs. It says in Isaiah 53.3, he is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hid it where our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Christ knows all about spiritual mourning, not because of his own sin. He was sinless. He was tempted like we were, but without sin. But he mourned the world's sin. He mourned the ones that he was coming to save. He mourned as he's walking down from that Gethsemane Road, Jerusalem, weeping over it because he knew they were going to reject him. He was mourning over their sin. He understands. So the blessing is, is you get to know Jesus more. 
And he's your man of sorrows. Can I put it this way? He's your man of mourning. He can empathize. He can walk in this journey with you. But let me say all this. Another blessing is the mission of the Redeemer is to comfort those who mourn. Again, writing years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah spoke of what the Redeemer would be to them when they came to him. Isaiah 61, verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. When he comes, what's he going to do? In the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all that talk to me, mourn. You, You good? All they that mourn. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, and that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. He comes to comfort you with him. It's another blessing. Christ accomplished his mission by bearing our sins and carrying our sorrows. So he's the man of sorrows. He's come with a mission. His mission is to rescue you, the the, the ones that are mourning over their sin. And how does he do that? Takes that sin that you're mourning over, takes it upon himself. He bears it. Again in Isaiah 5, 53, verse 3, and he's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's why he came. He came so that you can mourn your sin. Because in him, that sin is actually not applied to you. It's been applied to him. And his righteousness is implied to you. Last blessing. Let me leave you with this. The Holy Spirit comforts the person who mourns by making what Christ purchased yours. There's a beautiful verse in 1 Corinthians 6. In it, Paul lists a catalog of sins. Some of them are nasty. Drunkards, revilers, extortioners, idolaters, adulterers. Here's what he says. And such were some of you. But he washed you. But you're sanctified. We are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Faith unites you to the changer. My friends, in Christ, you can mourn your sin because that mourning is infused with hope because of Jesus. This is not a despairing message. I know I started it that way. It is a message infused with hope for the believer. If you are a Christian, there's no greater way to celebrate 
the 48th anniversary of Redwood than to say, God, I got nothing to offer you, but I have everything in you. Hence, I can mourn my sin. I can be real about it. And then, ooh, we're getting closer. We're getting closer. That fourth ring is now, man, I'm thirsting. I'm hungering righteousness. But you got to start with these roots so then you can have the life, which then leads to fruit. That's how you forgive. That's how you have peace. It started with Jesus, and I assure you, it's going to end with Jesus all the way through. Blessed are they that mourn. What kind of mourning? Your sin. My sin. Be broken over it. For they shall be comforted. I've been washed. I've been justified. I'm not the person that I always want to be. I want to be more. Paul even said that the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I don't want to do, whatever, however that goes. You know, you know what I mean, right? Thank you. Thanks for the grace. Love you. That's us, right? But in Christ, by the grace of God, he said, I am what I am. There's the comfort for those who mourn. That's why a spiritual Christian can say, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Is that's your experience? I pray that it is. And if it's not right now, hey, humble yourself before the Lord. Get on that first rung. Get the momentum so we can actually be broken over our sin rather than just accommodating it like so often our world does. Every head bowed, every eye closed.